If you would open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, our text this morning is verses 11 through 15. As you're finding your place, would you please stand? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. This is the word of God. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The Word of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come to this instruction in your Holy Word, I pray for those among us who are particularly challenged uh, to receive and embrace this instruction. I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister among us and help us to understand and not only understand but see the beauty in your design. I pray that you would give us hearts of servants, whether we be men or women, to serve one another and love one another. I pray that our witness as men and as women in the world would be strengthened by following your instructions according to the design and the way in which you have created us in your image, male and female. Lord, I pray, guard me today, help me to speak the truth in love, help me to be gentle yet resolute, that we would implement your vision, your instructions for your church. For Lord Jesus, you are the head you are the head of this household, and you govern us with full authority. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I am under no illusions with the text before us. I know the world in which we live. I know the culture that is all around us, both inside and outside of the church. I am fully aware that this is not a popular text. I also know that there is significant pressure on preachers of the word to apologize for this text, which I don't feel at all at liberty to do. And so... The challenge for me is to proceed delicately with sensitivity while at the same time affirming the goodness of God's word, the goodness of God's design, the goodness of God's plan, and, and how important it is that we not just pick and choose from God's word. On an autobiographical note, before I get into this text, I want you to know that I was not raised in a church that 
maybe even knew that this text existed. If they did, they, they did not go to it. I was raised in a united church. I had many ministers growing up who were women. Uh, I went to seminary not understanding anything about gender distinction. And I started to pastor still with a very loose, very unsure grasp of a distinction between manhood and womanhood in the church, in the home, and in the society in which we live. And it was uh, when I devoted myself to uh, memorizing God's Word, and I memorized First and Second Timothy, that the Word of God did a powerful thing in me and completely changed not just my mind, but my heart on this issue. And I began to see, at first it was a reluctant, a reluctant, well, I guess that's what the Word of God says. But it very soon became an awe-filled wonder at the beauty of God's design and God's plan and the clarity with which He has given that to us. And so my hope today is not to just present this text and say, this is what the Word of God says and therefore we must do it through some act of cold obedience. But my hope today is to affirm, hopefully to reaffirm for many, but to affirm maybe for some for the first time that, that God makes no mistakes and that God's design for men and women is beautiful and that we will be most fulfilled when we walk in his ways. So that is my hope. Now the instruction here, it's the fifth instruction in the book for the church, is that men are to teach and to exercise authority in the church. This is a gender-exclusive instruction to men. Now I have phrased the instruction in the positive toward men, because that's what this text means from verses 11 to 15. Now Paul, with perhaps greater clarity, but with less Canadian cultural sensitivity has worded the instruction in the negative toward what women are prohibited to do. But either we can prohibit women or we can affirm what men are called to do. It's the same thing. So the instruction is that men are to teach in the church. Men are to exercise authority in the church. The instruction, we find it in verses 11 and 12. Take a look here with me. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I want to begin by just acknowledging, and this is, hopefully we'll get much beyond this, how clear this is. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. The implication is I do not permit a woman to teach over a man. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. I think you have to do a lot of exegetical interpretive gymnastics to make that mean I permit a woman to teach and to exercise authority over a man. It just You have to do a lot of work to make that verse say and mean the exact opposite of what it says. 
Notice here in verse 11 that women are to learn quietly. This is in context or it's related to the teaching. I do not permit a woman to teach. She is to learn quietly. Now let us not miss though the the opportunity for equal learning in the church. Let a woman learn. Now for us this is of course, of course. But it may not have been a given in all places at all times in the world that men and women have equal access to learning in the church, that, that a man and a woman should be instructed in sound doctrine equally. They should have equal opportunity to go to school, equal opportunity uh, to, to learn the truths of Scripture. Then the second part of verse 11, with all submissiveness, is connected directly to, uh, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. So women are to learn, but not to teach men. Women are to exercise submissiveness to male headship in the church. Now, why? That's the question, right? Why? What, what is the reason for this instruction? Now, as we unpack the why, most of this morning is going to be taking a look at why this is so. Uh, in order to understand this, we have to make a correlation in our mind that it is necessary to, to understand that Adam, in the verses that we're going to see, the first man, is the archetypal man. Everything that is true of Adam is true of maleness. Everything that's true for Adam is true for all men. And Eve is the archetypal woman. Everything that is true of Eve is true of all femaleness. Whatever is true for Eve is true for all women. Now Paul is going to address both these issues of authority and of teaching, and he does them in order. In verse 13, he addresses first the issue of authority. Why is it? That the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, does not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Take a look at verse 13. Our answer is there. Because, or for, Adam was formed first and then Eve. You might say, well, what, what does that have to do with exercising authority? I'm not the firstborn in my family, but in certain contexts I'm to exercise authority. So what does the order of creation have to do with anything? In order to answer that question, we have to go back to Genesis. So keeping your finger or if you have a bookmark or something in 1 Timothy 2, please go back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Now we're going to be spending a lot of time in Genesis this morning, but we're not going to be uh, doing an exhaustive treatment of Genesis 2 and 3. We're going to pick out the pieces that are especially relevant for us this morning. So in order to understand why the fact that Adam was created first and then Eve has any bearing on the instruction that men are to exercise authority in the church and women are not to exercise authority in the church, we need to take a look at Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 5. So all the way, I want you to, to just note the context here is before the fall. The things that we're going to look at in verses 13 and 14, the reasons that Paul gives, they're not cultural reasons. 
women are not prohibited from teaching or exercising authority because it's the culture of Ephesus or the culture of the day or the culture of the Roman Empire. He goes back before the fall. So it's not a cultural, time-sensitive, time-limited, culturally exclusive reason that Paul gives, but this is a reason that goes back to the culture of the Garden of Eden. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that this prohibition for women against teaching and exercising authority is not the result of the fall. So it's not as though men have a certain role in in the church and women have a certain role in the church because of the fall. This is all true of men and women before the fall. This is before sin entered the world. This is how God created us. Okay, so with that in mind, Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So we're, we're between day 5 and 6 here of creation. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is day six of creation. God gathered together the dust of the earth, created a man and breathed life into him. He became a living man, a body-soul man. Verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, skip down. This just gives us sort of an address with a bunch of rivers, which is important but not germane to what we're talking about today. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So far, there's there's only one man. And God has given him his orders. I want you to go into the middle of the garden and I want you to take care of this. Back in Genesis 1, we've learned that he is to have dominion over everything that God has created. And so Adam, the man, is God's representative in creation. That's what this verse 15 is all about. Have dominion. Work it. Keep it. Have dominion over everything that I have created. We're going to get back to verses 16 and 17, but just for the moment, go down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, if, you, if we had read Genesis 1, we would remember that God creates. He says, Oh, it's good. He creates on the next day, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Well, that last one is very good. He looked at everything he had made. It was very good. But, but he's not yet finished on day six. And halfway through day six, it seems he says it's not yet good. Why is it not yet good? Because the man is still alone. So then we continue on in verse 18. I will make a helper fit for him. It's really important for understanding the role of men and women. 
God looked at Adam alone. He says, it's not good. He needs a helper. He needs someone to help him. Now, the Hebrew word here is applied to God sometimes. So this is not talking about, I need to make someone inferior to him. He's saying, God is saying, I need to give him a helper who is his equal. That's what fit for him means. I need to make him a helper who is his equal to, so that he can do his task. But notice this. What is the reason, and we're going to find out that this is going to be applied to woman. What is the reason that God creates woman? Is it to lead Adam? No, it's to help Adam. This is, this is the whole reason that the gender of woman exists. This is what womanhood is all about in, in its original context, is that I created Adam to have dominion. I need to create his equal who will have equal dominion, and yet I'm not going to create a helper to lead him. I'm going to create a helper who is his equal to assist him. Verse 19 we don't immediately get to the creation of woman. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And, and so you sort of have this parade of animals, and this is sort of the parade of potential helpmates. And Adam looks at the ostrich and says, is, that ostrich is not my equal, but I'll name it ostrich. Go ahead. Hippopotamus is not my equal, but, but I name you hippopotamus. Go ahead. Uh, orangutan, you're not my equal, but I'll name you orangutan. Next. And he goes through all of the animals, and he names them. He exercises his dominion over them. And each animal, we, we know animals are useful to help humanity in doing certain tasks. But none of them were his equal. None of them were a helpmate fit for him. There were a lot of helpmates among the animal kingdom, but none of them were fit for him. None of them were his equal. And we see the man exercising his authority, his leadership by naming them. We exercise our authority over our children when we name them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found among all of the animals his equal who could help him to have dominion over the things that God had created. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Why the rib? We know from science that you could clone, uh, you could clone a person from my fingernail. Why the rib? Why not Adam's toe? Why, why not the tip of his ear? God's making a profound, not a biological point. God could have created the woman from any part of Adam. Matthew Henry actually came up with this, and, and I, I think he's absolutely right. If God had taken Adam's toe and created the woman, then the man is always above her. If God had taken the top of Adam's ear and created the woman, then the woman is always above Adam. But if a man and a woman stand rib to rib, 
you've got two equal partners, rib to rib. It's the middle of the man. It's the middle of the woman. God's making a powerful point. Look, I am creating man, humanity, in my image. I am creating man, male and female. And I want you to have dominion, humanity, in my image, male and female. And this is how it's going to work. I made the man to have dominion. I've made you to share that dominion and to help him, not to lead him. It's the point. This is not a derogatory text toward women. And Adam affirms this. Take a look at verse 23. Then the man said, remember, he just had a parade of potential helpmates. He named all the animal kingdom. Finally, God brings him a woman. And this is what Adam says. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Let me translate that for you. I mean, I love this. The first words out of the mouth of a man is poetry. And very romantic poetry. Men, we could all learn from this. He says, finally, my equal Finally, God, you have made my equal. She'll help me to do the things you've called me to do. Now, but I want you to notice something. Not only in verse 18 have we identified that the reason that God created woman was not to lead Adam but to help Adam, we see here that leadership and that authority maintained after the creation of woman. And she shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Finally, my equal. I will exercise leadership and authority over my equal helpmate by naming her Isha, woman. So you still have this structure. The man was created first. The woman was created to help. The man continues to exercise authority in that relationship of equals. So women are not to exercise authority over a man in the church because before the fall, in God's original creative purpose for men and women, God did not create Eve to lead Adam, but to help Adam. And I want us to to see the beauty in this, the relationship between a man who leads and a woman who helps is a fruitful partnership of equals. And do you think that God created an incompetent helpmate for Adam who wasn't as as skilled as he was, didn't have the same abilities and talents as he had? No, this this is more in line with what happened. Adam's over here in the garden. He needs to commission his helpmate, who is his perfect equal, to go over and deal with this issue over in that part of the garden. She has to be every bit as capable, every bit as gifted, every bit as talented as he is. And when God took the rib from Adam, he says, I am going to create her with all, and I'm going to endow her with all the gifts and abilities I've given to you, with all of the intelligence that I've given to you. So this is not about men lead because men are better in any way, shape, or form. Uh, It's not that men have any greater intelligence. It's not that men have any greater abilities. And then you get into the New Testament. God has not 
distributed the gifts, the spiritual gifts, some to men and some to women. God has given all gifts to men and women. So it's not about that. This is, this is about God's reason for creating in the first place. God created man to represent him in the world, to have dominion over creation, and he created woman to help the man have dominion. And so, so we're going back to pre-sin, pre-fall, reason for being. What's the meaning of life? That's what this is all about. What's the meaning of life? We are creating the image of God to have dominion. How does that work? Well, men lead, women help. Equals. And men and women are equally capable. It's important that we see that. So that deals with this issue of leadership and authority. What about teaching? I just affirmed that God has created men and women equally uh, with in intellectual ability and capacity. There are many individual women who have a greater intellectual capacity than some men. There are some women who have been given the gift of teaching and some men who have not been given the gift of teaching. So why can't we just say, well, let's let women teach men? That's verse 13. Why are women not permitted to teach over a man? Verse 13. Because, or sorry, verse uh, 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. On the face of this, if you don't know Genesis, this looks like a very pro-man, very anti-woman statement. I'm going to, I assure you it's not. This is not about, oh, the woman was more gullible. The woman was more prone to deception. That's not what this is about. This is about the order in which God has, has given his word to humanity. You see, and I'll flesh this out when we go back to Genesis, but Adam was not deceived. Why? Because he received the word straight from God. Now, he couldn't be deceived. It was impossible for Adam to be deceived. Because God had told him the rules. So Adam was disobedient. The woman was deceived. Let's fill this out. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Now we jumped over verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Now I what I want to remind you of here is verse 15 is when partway through day six, God takes a man and puts him in the garden to have dominion. And then in verse 18, God says it's not good that Adam is alone. He brings all the animals by and then creates woman, which means that chronologically verses 16 and 17 happen before Eve even existed. That's important for understanding why it is that men are to teach in the church and women are not. So let's take a look at verse 16 and 17. Now, do you think that God knew, just before I read 16 and 17, do you think that God knew that he was going to create Eve? Absolutely. It's not like, oh, uh, something's missing here. Um, oh, yeah, woman, I forgot about her. That's not what's happening here. Therefore, the timing of the instruction given to Adam is very intentional on God's part before Eve was created. Verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This was the full Bible on day six. This was the revealed word of God. The Bible was two verses long. And this is what it says. And who did God give the Bible to? Give it to Adam. He gave his word to Adam. Now, as you're reading through chapter 2, will you find God saying, Oh, I, yeah, I should have waited to give my word till after I had created Eve. Mulligan that. Let's do this over. I'm going to now give my instruction to the woman. He doesn't do that. Implication is what? This is the way God's going to interact with humanity. He's going to entrust his word to the man, Adam, who then must teach the woman. And he will be held accountable. Romans 5 holds Adam accountable for the fall, not Eve. So this is the way that God has structured it, and he's done this intentionally. Uh, there's, there's an order here. God is going to entrust his word to man who's going to teach it to woman. Now we could do a very similar hierarchical structure of authority. God is the one with ultimate authority. He has created man to have dominion. He's created woman to help the man to have dominion, but the man is to lead the woman, and they together are going to have dominion over the animal kingdom and all creation. God, man, woman, animal kingdom. Now, within man and woman, we know that we don't have, uh, this is hierarchical, but not ontological, meaning this has nothing to do with the value of men and women. Men and women are created fully equal. I, I don't know if I could say it anymore. But I know that at the end, somebody will say, you know, that I didn't say that. Men and women are equal. So this hierarchical structure is not about men being greater than women. But this is how God has designed his, his creation. It's how he's designed the way in which he's entrusting dominion to humanity. It's the way in which he's entrusted the word of God to humanity. He's entrusted the word of God to man, who then is to teach woman. Go down to chapter 3. Let's take a look at when this order is subverted. God, man, woman, animal kingdom. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now why do you think the serpent went to the woman? We know that this is, this is either a bodily manifestation of Satan or Satan has possessed a serpent. We don't know which one it is, but the active agent here is Satan, who existed. Why does Satan go to the woman? Because she didn't receive the Bible from God. The word was not entrusted to her. Satan is, is saying, what is my best chance of success? I'm going, going to go to the one who has received the word through a mediator. Look what he says. Did God actually say? Now if he said that to Adam, Adam could say, yeah. Yes, he did. He said it to me. Verses 16 and 17. Now that's probably not what Adam would say. 
But because God didn't say anything to the woman directly, this is a potent challenge. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Looks like Adam has done his job, right? Eve is there, or woman at this point. The woman is there, and he says, look, there's one rule. We've got this great place. We have dominion over everything. We can eat of any tree, uh, but we can't eat of the tree in the middle. Good, good job, Adam. But Eve's not done. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? That's what Eve said, God said. Eve said, that, so, so the serpent comes up and says, did God really say that you may not touch any tree in the garden? Or what did, what did he say exactly? That you may not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Well, says the woman, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Where did that come from? If you go back up to verses 16 and 17, God never said, neither shall you touch it. There's only two options. Either Eve has invented this on the spot, or that's the way she received the instruction from Adam. The Bible doesn't tell us which one. I am inclined towards saying that we have the first demonstration of legalism where man has added to God's word. You see how dangerous legalism is? Adam has added to God's word and said, don't even touch it. You know, we're not allowed to eat of it. In fact, if you don't touch it, you won't eat it. Don't even touch it. Now, this is going to be the downfall for humanity because once Eve touches the fruit and nothing happens to her, the deception is complete. Bad teaching, legalism, leads to the fall. But the serpent, verse 4, said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, holding it. Oh, there's no problem. And she ate it. That's a problem. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Husband was there the whole time. Now we see the, fall, the, the downfall of Adam in two ways. Number one, bad teaching. Number two, where's his authority? Why isn't he leading? You know what? Come on, woman, away from this tree, away from that creepy snake. That's what he should have done, but he didn't. Adam fails to teach properly. He fails to lead. The result is the fall of humanity. So we can blame Eve. Was it Eve's fault? Well, partially. Was it Adam's fault? Totally. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Of course God knows. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God knows. He's giving him opportunities to repent, to confess and repent. Verse 12, and the man said, it's the woman. 
the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. She was supposed to help me, but she has helped me to sin. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, now look at this, deceived me. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The woman had a choice. Believe the man who taught her or believe the lies of Satan. She chose Satan because the teaching was bad and because the man did not lead in the moment. What Paul is saying is, therefore, I do not permit a woman to teach because that was never God's intention. But I do expect men to teach well. And I expect women to submit to that teaching. That was always the point. The woman was deceived. Women are not to teach men in the church because before the fall, God entrusted the word to Adam who was charged to teach the word to his wife. The relationship between a man who teaches and a woman who receives instruction was established by God and does not mean that man is superior to woman or that woman is inferior to man. It's just the way God has designed it. God was to entrust his word to man who was to teach to women and together they were to have authority over the animal kingdom in all creation. Now look what happens when you upend God's design. God, man, woman, serpent. What happens in the fall? The serpent turns the woman over the man over God. This is serious. God has designed us with a particular order, with a particular design. And when we just ignore that design, bad things happen. The fall happens. Do you want to blame Adam or do you want to blame Eve? They both sinned. She became a transgressor through deception. He became a transgressor through disobedience. In uh, 1 Timothy 2, Eve is highlighted as a transgressor. In Romans 5, Adam is highlighted as a transgressor. Ultimately, because authority and teaching was entrusted to the man, who is to blame the most? The man. The man is. And therefore, in the church, men, we must take seriously to lead well and to teach well and to guard the church against legalism, which led to the fall. Men and women are created equal before God, even while men and women are called by God to different functions with regard to one another. Now, we're not quite done. Just as man is uniquely called to teach men and women. So it's a gender exclusive calling that men is to have authority over men and women in the church and it is men who are to have teaching authority in the church. But I want us to notice verse 15. Women are also uniquely called to a particular function within the economy of salvation. 
So if men lead well and if men teach well, that will contribute to the salvation of many. Look at the gender-exclusive contribution of women. Just as men are uniquely called to teach men and women, so women are uniquely called to give birth to men and women. This brings up our last verse for consideration today. And just before I read this, can I just say, it is a travesty in the world, but when this becomes a reality in the church, this grieves me and it grieves God. That childbirth is looked down on as a second-rate gift or role or function? Are you kidding me? Giving birth to a child to bring new life into the world is second-rate to teaching and authority? It just doesn't make any sense. Logically, it's incoherent that to have authority and to teach is any greater than to bring a person into the world. And then to be entrusted with the life of that child as the child is weaned and growing up through toddlerhood and childhood and through the difficulties of, of teenager and adolescence. And that is a massive calling. That is not some second rate, well, we've got to give women something to do. So God says, well, why don't you just bear children? And in the context of the fall, where the fall should have led to certain death, entrusting childbearing, which is life, the opposite of death, is a high calling. It, I, don't, I don't know that you could rival it. Take a look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Commentators, oh man, they go all over the place with this. This is a tough verse to understand. You know, they say, well, it can't, that's, she will be saved. Surely that can't mean that you are actually saved by giving birth to children. And we're going to land and say, yes, that's what it means. But stay with me. As we go through this, what, what does that mean? But this is about salvation from sin to new life, from death to resurrection. The, she is Eve. The woman who was deceived and became a transgressor, Eve, will be saved. That is, she'll go from being a sinner to a child of God through childbearing. Let's just deal with that first before we get to the second half of the verse. Now, does this mean that you, uh, by, by the sheer act of giving birth, you're saved? No. That's obviously not what it means. If, if that's what it meant, then we're wrong. But this whole idea of salvation requiring childbirth is a biblical truth. Verses 13 and 14, the context was pre-fall, right? So it was God has set up men to, to have authority, and to teach before the fall. But now verse 15 takes us after the fall. We've already fallen. And that's why this yet. Yet even after the fall, there's something really important that the woman and all subsequent women are going to do that will make a real contribution to spiritual, resurrected, bodily salvation. 
and that is childbirth. Salvation has always required childbirth. Adam and Eve, I think there's good warrant to say that we'll see them in heaven. We will see them raised bodily from the dead. We can't get into that right now. But they were saved. How? By Jesus Christ. Every Old Testament saint that was saved was saved how? By the cross of Jesus Christ. Every New Testament saint, every church age saint, that's us, is saved how? By the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you have Jesus Christ without childbirth? You don't get to Jesus Christ without a genealogy that stretches all the way back to Eve. Childbirth has always been required for the salvation of anyone who would be saved, including Adam and Eve, including David and Abraham and Moses and whomever else, including Peter and Paul, including you and me. Childbirth is essential. Let's just sort of take it out of the whole Eve to, to Mary. So that's the chain of childbirth that is absolutely essential. Is that the only uh, string of childbirth that is necessary for salvation? No. Are you saved? How are you saved if someone didn't give birth to you? See, the salvation of any sinner requires first the birth of that sinner from a mother into the world. And so there is a massive contribution of childbirth where a woman gives birth to a child and that child, though a sinner, in the providence of God, if called and elected, will be saved by Jesus Christ. Childbirth then is required to bring Jesus into the world and childbirth is required to bring us into the world. And it's not just the physical act of giving birth to a child, but it's raising up a generation who will be able to hear the gospel, learn the gospel, apply the gospel, confess the gospel, and be saved. In other words, motherhood and the act of making disciples of your children is a high calling. And I want to state the obvious. Men cannot do this, especially the childbirth part. Does that make men inferior to women? No. But it's a gender-specific contribution. And if we can all recognize that there is a gender-specific contribution that women make to salvation, that men cannot make, because God did not design men and women that way, why can't we also affirm God has created men with a gender-specific contribution to make to salvation and life in the church. It's just the way God made us. If we were to go into Genesis 3, and I'll leave this up for you and your, in your discipleship groups, let me just point out a couple of things. Uh, There's a lot there that I won't be able to get to. But in verse 
Genesis 3, verse 15. To the serpent, this is what God says. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is maybe the earliest statement of the gospel. There's going to be a son born to the woman who will crush Satan under his heel. You need childbirth for that. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now we always focus in on the pain part. And I, I'm not a woman and I'm not saying that the pain isn't awful. And I think the pain is twofold. There's the pain of pregnancy. There's the pain of, of um, delivery, labor and delivery. But then there's pain that I can understand, which is common to men and women, which is the pain of raising up little sinners, which wasn't true before the fall. There's pain in childbearing now. So we, we focus in on the negative, right? I'm going to multiply your pain. In pain, you're going to do this. But look at the promise. You shall bring forth children. Now that is welcome news in light of chapter 2, verses uh, 16 and 17. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You eat that fruit, you're dying. You're going to die. Now God says, you, you shall bring forth children. That's amazing. And Adam was listening. He heard about life. He heard verse 15. He says, hmm, a, a child who will stomp on the head of the serpent, she will bring forth children. Take a look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. God's word to Adam ends in death. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Death. God's words to Eve end in life. You shall bring forth children. Adam picks up on this. So death is associated with Adam. Life is associated with with the woman. And then verse 20, and the man renamed his wife Eve, which is Latin. It's a Latin translation of the Hebrew. What he named his wife was life. He here, they, they've just been cursed by God Almighty. He himself has just received a curse of uh, the whole universe is, is cursed and corrupted because of your sin. And you're going to die. You were made from the dust. You're going back to the dust. And then it's like, it's like he didn't even hear any of that. He looks across at his wife and he says, I'm going to call you life. I'm going to call you life. Because you're going to be the mother of all the living. Is this a second-rate calling? It's not. Death came through the man. He was disobedient. He failed to lead. He didn't teach properly. 
The woman was deceived. She became a transgressor, yes, but it was through deception. And through the woman, God says, I'm going to save humanity by childbirth. The two of you are not the last two. And we're all here because she shall bring forth children. And in the bringing forth of children, God brought forth his own son in the likeness of human flesh, our Messiah, to die for our sin. By bringing a generation of children into the world and raising them to know the gospel, women make a gender-specific contribution to salvation in the church. And whether or not you've ever been pregnant, whether or not you've ever physically given birth, all women are called to participate in the raising of the next generation to know and love Christ. This is a gender-specific contribution that women were created to make in the church. And I know this because the word technogonia, which is translated childbirth here, means pregnancy, but the range of this word is bigger. It means physical labor. It also means to raise up children. It means to be a mother. To be a mother. And whether or not you have your own children, biologically or by adoption or, or not, you can be a mother in the church. You can come alongside other mothers. And this is not a small contribution. This is a massive contribution. Now this is not done in isolation from husbands and fathers or from men in the rearing of children. But if you look through the Bible, and if you look through the pastoral epistles, this idea of motherhood is held up as a glorious contribution that women make in a gender-specific way. So women, embrace it. Just as men, we got to do a good job of exercising headship with all the responsibility and burden that comes with that. Let's exercise our authority for the good of the church, for the good of our families. Not for our own ego, not for our own wants and, and desires, but to, to spill ourselves out for the good of others. So women, embrace this. Raise up a generation of children in this church who will profess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Make that contribution in the church. Because it's the hand that rocks the cradle that rules the world. Instruction number five, then, is that men are to teach and exercise authority in the church. This is not based on the culture of Ephesus. This is not based on an ancient culture. We can't undo it because our culture today is different. Because we're gender blind and gender multiplied. God created man in his image, not 12 genders, not four genders, not one gender. Male and female, he created them. And he created them as equals with gender-specific contributions to make. Therefore, this is based on God's pre-fall intention for men and women. Adam was created first to have dominion over creation. Eve was created to have dominion as his helpmate, not to lead him. God entrusted his word to Adam, and Adam botched it. 
But God didn't change his design. And men have been making errors in, in that command for, for ever since Adam. Uh, so just because men have failed to do what God created them to do doesn't mean that God changes his design. It means, men, we got to do a better job. God has entrusted the word to us. And we must teach accurately. After the fall, death came through Adam. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But life came through the woman. You shall bear children. And Adam looked at his wife and said, Your name isn't Isha, woman. Your name is life. By giving birth, Eve contributed to the propagation and salvation of all. God's design for men and women is not something that we should just be embarrassed about. We, we shouldn't just reluctantly implement this. We need to celebrate this as beautiful. And it's not the Bible. It's not God. It's not the church that hates women. It's feminists who say that to be a woman is bad and that women should be men. God loves women. He created you women in his image. With high calling. We then must exercise a partnership of equals, each making gender-specific contributions for the good of the gospel and the good of this world. The world needs this witness. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for this instruction. And I pray for us as a church that you would help us to Embrace this as beautiful. I pray that you would help us to see the equality between men and women and yet to see the, the distinction in how you've created us and why you've created us. I pray that the men entrusted to leadership in this church uh, would accurately teach the word and exercise an authority that is not domineering but is in the good of the church reflects the character of Christ. I pray for husbands who exercise headship in the home that uh, they would do likewise. And I pray for women that they would embrace the reason you created women in your image. Not to lead men, not to teach men, but to help us to glorify you in every way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.